You know, there was about 100 years ago, uh, there were these brothers, a guy named Richard and a guy named Andrew. The last name was Mellon, Richard and Andrew Mellon. They were very, very smart guys. Uh, and they both worked at a bank at one point. <clears throat> Andrew was the president of the bank, and Richard worked for him. And then Andrew got promoted to the secretary of the treasury. <laughs> and uh, so Richard became the president of that bank. And Richard really had a flair for this stuff because when the Great Depression hit, his thinking and the way he structured things made it possible that dozens and dozens of banks were able to survive the Great Depression because of how he had things set up. And through that process, uh, he became uh, a fairly wealthy guy. And he saw the money that he had acquired uh, as a gift, and it wasn't for him to keep. And so he gave away nearly everything he had. Uh, he, he created this uh, research institute, the Mellon Institute of Industrial Research uh, that became a part of the Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, he also was a big giver of uh, ministries. He gave to his church in droves. It was mainly because of his giving that they were able to build this massive new sanctuary. In addition, he single-handedly set up a $15 million pension fund for uh, Presbyterian ministers when they retired. But... Even with all of this, they were very serious men, had very serious jobs, and um, were very, very smart. They were also unique, Richard and Andrew, because from the moment they were little children all the way through adulthood for decades, they kept a running game of tag going. In their bank offices, president of the bank, secretary of the treasury, they would sneak into each other's offices and tag each other. Say tag. They had some kind of elaborate rules. You couldn't do tag backs and this kind of deal. Uh, but it went on all the way throughout their entire lives from, from when they were little kids. <laughs> Up until the point, Richard is lying on his deathbed. And everyone's in the room. His family is all around. And, I mean, he's being very somber. He's in, everyone's coming over to his bed. And he's got something to say for every single person. So he's saying something to each person who's in the room. They come over and he whispers something just for them. And he gets to his brother, Andrew. Uh, and, and he calls Rick, uh, Andrew over and tells him to lean in close because he can't talk very much. And he says, last tag. And he slaps him in the chest. And he died a few days after that. <laughs> and uh, you see, families are funny things, right? Knowing these guys and all that they've done and what's on their resume, no one would have ever thought they had a running game of tag going their entire life to the point that his last words to the brother he loved was, tag, you're it. <laughs> and uh, a few months after that, Andrew also passed away, and maybe they're playing tag now in heaven. We don't know. We'll find out when we get there, I guess. But families are very unique, and everybody's family is unique in their own right, right? Wouldn't you say that there are elements of your family that are unlike anybody else's family? And wouldn't you say that other people's families are very, very different from yours, Right? Maybe you have members of your family that you would like to give to somebody else's family. I don't know. But everybody's family is unique. We're going to take a look today at something unique. Jesus, um, two instances in Jesus' life and ministry uh, in dealing with families. So uh, open your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. 
It will also be on the screen uh, if you're in the room, and, and uh, you can turn to one of the Bibles there on the rack in front of you. It's on page 874. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. Just take it. That's your gift. That You can have it. It's yours. Just take that Bible home. Uh, Luke chapter 15. Now, we're going through a series called Last Words about the last words Jesus spoke from the cross. And now, Luke 15 isn't something Jesus spoke from the cross. We're going to get to what he spoke in just a few moments. Uh, but this is a lead up to that. Uh, so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is, is giving a series of three parables. Okay? And parables, when Jesus told them, that parables were not allegories. You know, allegories, each little element of the story told means something special and something unique and something different. Uh, parables really just have one meaning. People sometimes try to make an allegory out of a parable, and that really doesn't work because it breaks down. A parable usually is in response to something the way Jesus told it, and it usually has one meaning. And these three parables he tells here, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, trying to find an unbeliever, the parable of the lost coin, trying to find an unbeliever, and the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, about an unbeliever. But what's unique about this last one, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, is it's told in a way none of the other parables are told. Because it's like it has two parts. It's got the first part that's about one son, and then it's like it's got the sequel that's about the other son that this man has. And so we're going to go through this parable about this family, this fa unique family dynamic here. Starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, this was a first century type of deal. It was very unique. You know, you would, as, as a child, you would get an inheritance, and it was a big deal. The firstborn would get a certain amount more than the other children. And you could ask, you know, it was dishonoring, but you could ask to have the property go ahead and to be divided before the death came. And the only way you could access the inheritance was with the permission of the one who really owned it. So in this case, the father. But this son is going to take it even further with great, uh, a great deal more dishonor in his next thing he does. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this son does something that in, even in the first century nobody did. He took that divided inheritance, and he went ahead and he took his. Now, you notice it doesn't say he asked for permission. He just took it. He took it, and we're going to find out later, he sells off all the property that was supposed to be his. He sells off all the uh, uh, things that his father was handing down with great sentimental value. He sells it all, converts it all to cash, and he goes to this far country, and it says he squandered it on reckless living, all kinds of reckless decisions, not caring about the consequences of the decisions he was making. Uh, look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now this, Jesus is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. And everything he just said in verses 15 and 16 would have been deplorable to a Jewish audience. That this man sold himself as a slave to someone from another country, a Gentile. 
To work for a Gentile was a big no-no if you were a Jew in Israel in the first century. And so he sells himself there. Not only that, his job is to feed pigs. So he's working for a Gentile, which is unclean, you know, item number one. Now he's feeding pigs. That's unclean item number two. He's double unclean. He's like uh, 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 the, the uh, outcast of his people. And not only that, you see there in that verse 16, he's so incredibly hungry that he's desperate to eat what the pigs are eating. And so everyone that Jesus is speaking to in this parable would know this guy is as far away from God, as far away from where he's supposed to be, that he's making these kinds of decisions. And so it's in this having reached the bottom of the barrel that this man begins to have a change of heart. Uh, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will stay, or I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, lots going on here. See, the son has made up his mind, why am I doing all of these things? Why have I hit rock bottom? Why am I here when in my father's house, even the servants, those who have my job now, are well-fed, well-dressed, well-taken care of. They're not hungry. So he packs up. He doesn't have anything to pack up. He packs up himself, and he goes back to his father. And, and, and undoubtedly, as you can imagine, you know, we know already he's planning to, to say something to his father. He probably has that running conversation going, like what he thinks is going to happen when he gets there. Like he's thinking what he's going to say. He's anticipating what his father's going to say. And then what his father says, he's, he's anticipating, okay, how am I going to respond to that? And he's got it all played out in his mind. And then when he gets there, his father, the idea here is his father has been looking for him. His father's been waiting for him to come. And it says his father saw him and felt compassion. And now, you see there, it says his father ran. Now, this was a cultural faux pas. You greatly dishonored yourself in the first century if you were a man and you were seen by anyone running, and you weren't being chased by a bear or an army or something. It was, it was considered something you did not do. Societal suicide. But this man, the father, does not care. All that he sees, his son is coming. So he doesn't care about culture. He doesn't care what people think. He just beelines it for the son, embraces him, and kisses him. I, I picture... Have you ever, uh, any of you have kids? When your kids were little, you ever walked in the house and you hear a loud noise and then the kids make a beeline for you? They don't slow down to give you a hug. I mean, it's just, whoosh, bam! Uh, I can distinctly remember several times I was knocked on my back because I'd get down and here they come. And, oh, I guess I can't do that anymore. They're getting too big for that. And so that's the way I picture is the father's making a beeline, doesn't even slow down, just, mm, just grabs his son. He's so excited he's back. He came to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. Now look what happens next. This is, this is great. 
verse, let's see, I lost my place. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he, he starts spitting out what he had prepared to say. But there was more. I mean, he just, you know, said the first two sentences. He had more he was going to say. We saw earlier when he was practicing, he had more he was going to say. But the father's not even listening to him. The father cuts across what he's saying. And look at what he says. He says, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. So he says, bring all this stuff and put on him. The best robe, ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Now this robe and ring and shoes, this would have been stuff that he did not have previously. As a son in the house, he would not have, this robe was probably the father's robe. The ring was a ring of authority. The, and he would have been given shoes, special shoes that only would have been worn by someone probably in the father's position. And so he's coming home. This formerly lost son is now receiving a new position in the house. His status has changed. He's been given a, 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 a new honor because of his relationship to the father in getting the robe and the ring and these shoes. And then notice, too, in that verse, he says, bring the fattened calf. This is a cow here. He doesn't say bring a goat. He doesn't say bring a lamb. He says bring the fattened calf. This was a special thing. They, were, they would be, you know, feeding, force feeding this cow, extra food to, uh, for a special celebration. But the idea that it's a cow, I don't know if you've ever seen a cow. Cows are big, right? Can your one family eat a whole cow? There's an old I Love Lucy episode where Lucy tries to, you know, thinks she's saving money, so she buys half a cow and they put it in the freezer and it's just so much meat. Um, and then she gets locked in the freezer, so it's a whole thing. You should go watch that one. But he says, bring the fat calf, kill it. So it's, it's, not just our, it's not just the father and the two sons sitting down to eat. He's inviting the whole community to this deal. This is a citywide party he's going to have at his house. Because his son has come. And so that's the idea. He says, give him special honor. He's got a new position in our house. We're going to uh, kill the calf. And, and everyone is going to celebrate because, and because of this reason. Verse 24. For this my son was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. My son was lost. He's found. He was dead. He's alive. A new relationship with the Father brings new opportunities. You see, previously, <clears throat> the son, none of this. He didn't get a ring. He, he, he hadn't had a ring before. He didn't have a special robe before. Didn't have the special shoes before. You know, the, the Air Jordan first century. He didn't have any of that. He didn't have the fattened calf. He didn't, he didn't have any of this celebration. It was his coming and, and getting this new status, this new honor, this new relationship with the Father that introduced this new opportunity to him. And everyone was coming to celebrate this moment. But, look at what happens next. Verse 25. Now, this, this is the part two. This is the sequel. This is where the, there's a transition between, you know, the part one of the parable, part two of the parable. He says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, 
what these things meant. Now, notice, the older son doesn't go into the house to see what's going on. The older son gets close enough to hear something going on, and he sends for his servant to come and tell him. He doesn't come to the father and ask. He doesn't come to his brother and ask. He stays at a distance, and he sends for a servant. says, what is going on? Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Now, earlier in the passage, the younger son, we see, came. Now we see the older son not coming. The father comes to him. The father comes to him. Verse uh, 29. But he said to his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, I want you to look at that verse for a sec. Do you notice anything about how this son views his relationship with his father? He, he views his interaction with his father really as transactional. I do something for you. I work for you, so you give me stuff. I work in the field, so right now you should be giving me a goat. I work in the field, so in the future you should give me an inheritance. I do for you, so you give to me. But that's not the relationship with the father at all. And the father's going to teach him this, that in relationship with the father, you don't get because you work. You get because of relationship. And so look, so the son kind of spills it out here. I worked all this time. You didn't even give me a goat. He wanted him a goat. He had an eye on a goat. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? Can you hear the disdain in his voice? He won't say the brother's name. He won't even call him his own brother. This son of yours, he did these, it was his own decision. And you celebrate him? He, he made his decision. He should have to live with the consequences. He should not be celebrated. The brother is <laughs> in a fit state. Verse 31. This is the father's response. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, the idea that the father's communicating to his older son is, I've never withheld anything from you. Anything we have on this property, you've had access to this whole time. You never had to ask. You never had to, you, it was all yours. It, our relationship isn't about you do something for me, and I give you something. Because look, Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the, the older brother really thought he wasn't getting what he deserved. That because he was working so hard for the father, the father should have been giving him all kinds of stuff all the time. But he was missing the whole point. Because I, I read this in one of the commentators on this passage this week. This is what he said. 
He said, the proud and self-righteous always feel that they are not treated as well as they deserve. The proud and self-righteous always feel as though they are not treated as well as they deserve. Because for them, the eyes are always on themselves and never on anybody else and never on a greater purpose. It's always on, well, I didn't get what I should have gotten. It's not fair. It's not fair. I'm sure some of your parents were like mine. I remember when I was a kid and I would yell that to my parents. It's not fair. You know what my dad would say back? Life's not fair. <laughs> Clean your room. <laughs> the older son wanted something. Wanted something. But what we see in the passage is one son came. One son did not. The imagery is both sons were lost. Both of them were lost. One son thought he didn't need his father until he did, and he came. The other son thought that he could earn everything he needed from his father. And that's not the way relationship with the father works. Both sons were lost. Both sons. You see, if the older son had really understood the power of relationship with the father, he could not have helped but celebrate when the younger son came home. If he really understood what a relationship with the father was like when the, when the younger son came home, he would have been all about celebration. Because look back, uh, Tony, pop that verse back up again, that last verse, verse 32. It says, it was fitting to celebrate. That, that phrase, it was fitting, that's one word in the Greek. It literally means it was necessary. So it's not just proper. The father's saying it, I, we ha it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. We had to celebrate and rejoice. We could not hold it in because he came. And so the principle there is we have to celebrate the ones coming. That's the whole passage, even the one, verses before this section in, Hebrew, in, in Luke 15. Celebrate the ones coming. They're coming to Jesus, celebrate them. Celebrate people coming. Because I want to take you back to what this whole section began with. All right? Uh, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. This is what happened that Jesus responded with these three parables. He, uh, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, when people said sinners, this particular word in the first century, it was used in a derogatory fashion. It was used like, like Hakanalugi, like sinners. They're, they're terrible people. Ugh. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Like with an angry look on their face. They, they, they can't stand these people. And so Jesus responds with these three parables and says, what do you mean? People are coming to know the truth. We've got to celebrate it. You look at all three of these parables with the lost sheep. The shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep. They have a celebration. The, the woman searching for the lost coin finds it. They have a celebration. Uh, the, the father gets his, his lost son comes. They have a celebration. It's about celebrating the ones coming. If people are coming to Jesus, you celebrate. You don't shut the doors and lock them. Anybody and everybody needs to come to Jesus. In Acts chapter 15, it was, a, it was a, the first massive business meeting in the church. And you know how it concluded? We cannot prevent people from coming to Jesus. We cannot put up roadblocks. We cannot make it more difficult. We need to pave the way for people to come to Jesus. 
And so anybody who's making it more difficult for people to come to Jesus, this is not for you. we got to make it easy. Because at the base root of it, coming to Jesus, you got to believe that Jesus is God's son. He died, rose from the dead, so all your sins are forgiven, and you get to go to heaven. There's not a special way you got to dress. There's not a special way you got to talk. There's not a special way you got to act. There's not a special way you got to smell. There's not a special car you got to drive, a special pair of shoes you got to wear. There's not a very special anything. You just got to believe. The level for entry is very low. For all of us, thank the Lord. Because I guarantee none of us would want it any higher than that. The level for entry into the family of God, the level for entry into heaven. If it were any higher than belief, none of us would be in. None of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. All of us are in desperate need of a Savior. And so Jesus tells these parables, and he says, celebrate the ones coming. Celebrate them. Celebrate them coming. Coming to be part of the family. Coming to be a part of this very unique, very, very personally diverse family. No one in the family of God is like anybody else in the family of God, thank goodness. And we see, actually, a very interesting statement about this from the cross. Jesus makes an interesting statement about his own actual physical family from the cross. In John chapter 19, John chapter 19, so turn over there. John chapter 19, if you're using a Bible there on the pew rack, it's on page 905. John chapter 19. So Jesus is hanging on the cross Dying for the sins of the world. And he's concerned about his family. Both his physical family and the spiritual family. As that parable was about the spiritual family. John 19 verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister. Her name was Salome. We find that out in another gospel. Salome was actually the mother of James and John. So Mary's sister Salome was the mother of James and John, two of his disciples. So standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, there's a lot here. Again, he's dying for the sins of the world, and he stops to make this point, this moment. Because as the firstborn son, it would have been the responsibility of Jesus to care for his mom if Joseph were out of the picture. And so that's why we believe Joseph, Mary's husband, was dead at this point. Because otherwise, Mary would not have been Jesus' responsibility. And so Mary's Jesus' responsibility, and so as the firstborn son, he had to take care of her. But now he's dying. And so it begs the question then, why would he not just let the next oldest sibling take care of his mom? Well, we learn back in John chapter 7, his, his other siblings, his brothers and sisters, did not believe at this point. They were not believers. And he wanted to entrust his mom to someone of the same faith. And so he looks out, and there is John the disciple. John, his cousin, 
John was there next to them. And coincidentally, John was the only disciple at the cross. Judas, at this point, had killed himself. The other ten were hiding, scared for their lives. And John, very brazen, very bold, comes to the foot of the cross with his mom, with Mary, Jesus' mom, and these other two Marys. And they're there, and Jesus looks out. Again, it's very interesting because this is in the, in the hearing of John's mom. He says, John, here is your mom. Mary, here is your son. And so John takes that responsibility, and from that point forward for the rest of her life, John takes care of Mary. Jesus creates a new family because relationship with Jesus creates a new family. Relationship with Jesus means we have a new relationship to each other. If we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a new relationship to each other. Like the parable with the lost son, the, the, the older brother had basically cut off the younger brother and said, we don't have a relationship anymore. But the father, when the son came, he, he, he introduced a new relationship because they had a new relationship. And so this is what this is. If we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a new relationship to each other. As Jesus was pointing out to Mary and John from the cross, a relationship with Jesus means a new relationship to each other. Let me illustrate this. I got some helpers this morning. Caleb, Caden are going to come help me. Got my bag of tricks here. Okay, each of you take one of those top two shirts and put them on. Okay. Anybody like sports? So, Jesus creates a new relationship. You could unbutton that. That'll work. And so here, here y'all come over here and face the, face the room. So we've got the Astros and we've got the Rangers. Different teams. Different teams. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, I don't know if, I, if you know this about sports. Sometimes different teams say not nice things to each other. Did y'all know that? And they're always trying to defeat the other team. They want to beat them. They want them to lose and their own team to win. And this is the way it, it, it functions in the world. Right? The, the, the thinking of the world is survival of the fittest. And whoever I've got to step on to get up, I'm going to step on them. Because we're not on the same team. We can say, oh, yeah, we're on the same team. We're even playing the same sport. But we're not really on the same team. We're trying to beat them. We're trying to crush them. We're trying to make them not better. That's, honestly, that's some of the reason we gossip. Because making somebody else look less than makes us feel like we are better than. But when we get a relationship with Jesus, everything changes. Here, take those off, and y'all grab one of the next ones that are in there. There you go. Just throw it back in the bag. Here. And what it ends up doing is not only does Jesus change everything about us, he brings us to a new sport, God's sport. And he puts us on the same team, even if it looks like we're from different generations, even if how we approach it looks different. 
It's still the same team. Houston Rockets. Houston Rockets. They turn around. Show them who it is. Kim Olajuwon. That's right. There you go. There you go. That's right. Yeah. These, these were mine when I was a kid. <laughs> um, as you can tell, they're kind of fading. But they, you see, God, what he does, he puts us on the same team, fighting for the same purpose, working towards the same end. And so to do or say anything against my teammate hurts the whole team. Even if the other person on my team is actually doing it, they're doing and saying things against my team, that doesn't mean I need to. That doesn't justify me doing it as well. And so just because they want to harm the Lord's work doesn't mean I need to. We're supposed to be working towards the same purpose. Having a relationship with Jesus puts us on the same team, working for the same goal, trying to pursue what he has for us and stop being opposed to each other. Because introducing somebody new, celebrating somebody new coming in just means God has something better for us in the coming time. You go ahead and take those off. You can throw them back in the bag. <laughs> thank you, guys. Y'all want to thank them? That's right. Good job, good job. You see, we're supposed to be working together. We're supposed to be celebrating the ones coming. Because a relationship with Jesus means we have a new relationship to each other. Jesus in us should redefine how we see everyone. That we see everyone in need of Jesus. And it's on us to bring them to Jesus. Because look at what Jesus said in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, here's the kicker, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's evident that we know Jesus by how we treat people on our own team, by how we treat people coming to our team, by how we treat people. We have to love people. See, if we grow in Jesus... If we are growing in Jesus, then we are loving. That's what he's saying. If you're my disciples, you're going to love one another. If you're growing in Jesus, there will be love demonstrated. Love is a decision that we make. You don't have to feel it. That's not what love is. Love is a decision that we make towards other people. We choose to love. That means, so for loving, that means we're not critical. It means we're not complaining. It means we're not grumbling. It means we're not belittling means we're not gossiping. If we are growing in Jesus, then we're loving and we're not those other things. It means if somebody does that stuff in front of us, that means we got to shut it down. Say, no, 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 you're not saying that to me. No, no. Mm-mm, mm-mm. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus. You see, because proclaimed love of Jesus is proved in how we love each other. A proclaimed love of Jesus is proved in love that we have for each other. If we say we love Jesus, then it is shown in how we love, whether or not we do love. And if we don't love one another, then maybe there's not really a love for Jesus. Maybe it's just knowledge and not a decision that we've made. See, because John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, to love God is to love people. To love God is to love people. So if there is not love for people, 
maybe there's not really a love for God. I mean, it's scripture, 1 John 4.10. I didn't put that in there. But you can go look it up. To love God, we must love people. Because our relationship with Jesus redefines our relationship with each other. If we genuinely have a relationship with Jesus, then that changes everything about everything we see. It changes how we see everyone. It changes how we perceive them. It changes how we interact with them. That It's no longer about how they treat me. It's about showing them Jesus. It's not about whether or not they look right, smell right, like how we think everything should be. It's about Jesus. And anybody coming to Jesus is a great thing. It's something to be celebrated. It's something to be, even, even this, you say, well, they've already made their choice, and they've tried to come to Jesus four, five, six times. Well, how many times are we supposed to forgive? Four, five, six? That Jesus said, once you get to number seven, you're good. You don't have to do it anymore, right? Right? Or you say seven times 70. Unlimited. Because think about it again. How many times do you want Jesus to forgive you? How many times do you want Jesus to accept you? What if Jesus only accepted you as many times as you accept somebody else? What if Jesus only forgave you as many times as you forgave somebody else? What if Jesus only extended as much love to you as you extend to somebody else? The person you're thinking about right now that you try not to ever even mention their name out loud because it's like... You know, it's, I mean, it's like bitterness on your tongue. You just don't want to say it. It just makes you want to throw up, just even thinking their name. What if Jesus only loved you as much as you love that person? Now, it's not the way he operates. He's going to love you no matter how much love you give out because he's Jesus. But because we have Jesus in us, that love that he offers to us should then pour out to everyone else. Even if it's hard, and it is hard sometimes. Doesn't matter. You say, man, it is not fair that they're acting that way and I've got to love them. Well, what did we say earlier? Life's not fair. But you know who loves generously? Jesus. He loves you without limit, without bound. He forgave you everything in advance, knowing you were still going to do the stuff that he already forgave you for. And so the love that we have, the forgiveness that we have, because we have Jesus within us and we have a relationship with Jesus, that should then redefine every other relationship we have. Every single one. The people in our house, the people in our church, the people in our community. Somebody comes to Jesus, we got to celebrate them, and it redefines everything about us. You know what that means? That means we don't write anybody off. Ever. Maybe they don't need to be direct influences in our lives, but that doesn't mean we write them off. If they come to Jesus, then we celebrate that moment. Always. Always. And so the question comes up then, this relationship with Jesus, you have to ask yourself first, do you have one? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he came to this earth and died so that all your sins would be forgiven? And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that, that is your entrance into heaven. That is your, your access into God's family. 
That's it. That's all you got to do is believe. And then once you believe, you can never lose what he has given you, salvation, eternity. Scripture actually says that, that you are held in the palm of his hand once you believe. And so to lose your salvation would mean you would have to be stronger than God. And I'm looking at you. I don't think any of you are. You're not. You're not stronger than God. There's no sin you can do that is more powerful than Jesus' death on the cross. There's, as I've said, there's nothing you can do that can undo what he did. It's been done. You're sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. For all time. Forever. You're held in the palm of his hand. Do you need a relationship with Jesus? And if you do, today's the moment. Don't put it off. Don't argue in your head and say, I'll just do it next week. I'll do it some other time. No, do it today. Stop all that. That's just the enemy trying to delay. That's a delay tactic. You've got to hit it, hit it now. So if you're in the room, make that decision right now. In a moment, we're going to sing. And when we sing, that's your invitation to come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That's how actually the whole Bible concludes in the book of Revelation. The very last few verses say, come. Come, you who are thirsty, come. So will you come to Jesus today? I'll be standing right there. I want to talk to you before you walk out of this green carpeted room. Come to know Jesus today. If you're watching online, there's a little link right below, wherever you're watching, that says, I made a decision. If you click on that, it's a little form. Your name, uh, your phone number, and what your decision was, and I'll call you today and celebrate that decision with you. And so you can come this morning, come to Jesus Make that decision here and now. Maybe you need to ask yourself, how are the relationships in my life as far as it depends on me? Do I need to have a further, a further, a greater investment in my relationship with Jesus? Because my relationship with Jesus should be redefining all my other relationships in my life. All of them. So who do I need to go to? Who... How do I need to further invest my relationship with Jesus in Scripture, in prayer, in other people going together through Scripture in prayer, praying with me through this process of forgiveness and a life bitter free? So whatever decision you need to make today, whether you need to begin your relationship with Jesus or you need to further your relationship with Jesus based upon how you have treated your other relationships, there's not one of us that should walk out of here the same. Because we're all in process. All still journeying to wherever he has us going spiritually. We can all work towards his purpose. Making progress as we move towards perfection. We won't attain perfection in this life, but he wants us to be making progress. Moving forward in him. Better tomorrow than we were today. Better in a year than we are now. I've told the story before about my uncle. His goal, his weight loss goal was always to lose one pound a year so that, you know, in 20 years, he'd feel pretty good. When it comes to spiritual progress, it's just baby steps, just a little bit at a time, just a little bit better, just a little bit more, just a little, maybe just a little bit more scripture, maybe, you know, just read a little bit more today, pray a little bit more, further my relationship with Jesus, refocus my attention and purpose because my relationship with Jesus redefines every other relationship I have. So what decision do you need to make today?